You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 14. And this morning we are looking at verses 22 through 36. Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, being battered by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are truly God's Son. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they were pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were cured. Let's go to our Lord together and ask his blessing now, this time of preaching. Father in heaven, thank you for each and every soul gathered in this place before me. Lord, we know from your word the love that you have for the creatures that you made, the love that you have for humanity. Most of the people sitting before me are yours by faith in your Son, by the work of redemption that Jesus accomplished. They are yours. But no doubt some sitting before me do not yet know you, lost still in trespasses and sins. And I thank you that they are here today. And I pray, Lord, that as your word goes forth on this day, you might save some We gather as your church, we gather as your people because we need this ongoing work that you are doing through the corporate worship of your people, the encouraging work, the fortifying work, the correcting work, the washing work that you do. We need this. And so as your word goes forth today, Lord, may it accomplish everything that it's sufficient for, everything you've ordained for this day that it would accomplish, Lord, would you do your work in our lives, your people, knowing what we need. We thank you for your love toward us, Lord, that is constant, your faithfulness. 
that is perfect. Even as we've just sung about, Lord, indeed, you didn't just take us to yourself. You didn't just take hold of us. You hold on to us. You'll see us all the way through to the end. So thank you and bless this day, Lord. Bless this time of preaching, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The Son of God comes to his disciples walking on the Sea of Galilee in the fourth watch of the night, which is to say between three and six in the morning. He comes to his disciples right in the midst of a terrible storm, the wind blowing so strongly that they could not make any progress. A couple of miles out from the shore, but still a ways to go before they reach the other side. He comes walking to them on the water. As I said last week, it's amazing to me just how matter-of-factly Matthew records it. He was walking to them on the sea. Something never seen before, something never seen since. We said last week in these verses that this was a Christ-arranged testing of their faith. Everything about the situation makes clear that it is divinely orchestrated for the purpose of teaching. The men didn't want to go ahead of their Lord. Jesus insists on them getting in the boat, going to the other side. Verse 22 says he made the disciples get into the boat. So he insists that they leave, they go out on the water, and then as he is praying, there's this fierce storm that meets them. And he leaves them there for a while. The storm, it appears, struck fairly early in the evening. Jesus continues to pray until 3 to 6, somewhere in that time frame, as he then makes his way out onto the water to meet them. So he didn't just send them out into the storm. He leaves them there for a while to the point that they're exhausted, to the point that they know they can't make headway on their own. And then he comes to them in a way that only God could have. Who is it that walks on the water like on the ground, like on the floor? Job 9.8 says it is God. God does this. And so we see the deity of Jesus on display, and we see the disciples' need on display. How much we need our Lord. How much we need to know we need our Lord. How we need to recognize the weakness of our own strength and ability and wisdom and everything else. How desperately we need the Lord every moment of every day. And then you see Christ's tender faithfulness as he, they're afraid, they don't know what they're seeing, they think perhaps they're seeing some sort of apparition, and he immediately calms their fears with his voice. Take courage, don't be afraid, it's, it's me. I am, I am here. This is a Christ-arranged testing, or you could even say a teaching of their faith. But now we see, beginning at verse 28, that their faith is not just tested, it is, it is sifted. On display in these verses is both what is present in Peter and the others because of God's grace to them. I mean, there's something in Peter that can only be explained by God. That speaks of the genuineness, the reality of his faith, the genuineness of, of his experience of the grace of God in salvation, but then also at the same time, we're going to see what is lacking in Peter, and Jesus points this out in a way that's exhortative, in a way that is 
developmental for him. And that's us. That's us. We, we not only meet with situations by God's design that test our faith, we also meet in the same situations with that which exposes us, exposes what is present in us that only God could have done, but at the same time exposes what is present in us that is not yet finished. The Lord is at work there, and the Lord is going to be at work there, and the Lord has work to do there, and He's working to conform us to the image of Jesus. We are put into the situations where we are not just proven, we are developed, we are sifted. Jesus appears, the disciples are afraid, Jesus makes Himself known, don't be afraid, take courage, it is I. Now the question is, how will they respond? How will they respond? And the man who is put before us front and center is Peter. Verse 28, and Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter. And because the Holy Spirit has put Peter before us in this text, I want us to think for a few moments about this man. What can we say about the Apostle Peter. First thing I want to say this morning is he, he is the representative disciple. When we see Peter, we don't just see Peter. In a sense, we see the others as well. He, he, he again and again in the gospel accounts, speaks for the group, stands in the lead, so that when you see Peter what you're meeting with is the voicing of, of what others thought and others felt. Perhaps they talked about privately together, but Peter was the one who so often gave voice to it, who, who just said it. And one of the most wonderful things about our Lord for us this morning is to recognize how He dealt with Peter, how He dealt with His disciples. Because what is on display again and again is a tremendous patience and kindness, and grace, and love. Jesus loved His men. Jesus was a patient teacher to His men. And when I think about that, I think about how we view each other. I think about how Jesus dealt with a Peter, and I think about, especially those of us who are involved in training others for ministry, I think about, do we see men who are preparing for ministry the way Jesus saw his men. Because I think when we look at Peter, we see something that would challenge many a ministry trainer today. That you and I might be tempted to look at someone like Peter and say, you know what, I'm just not sure he's made of the right stuff to entrust ministry to such a man. What do you see in Peter? Well, first of all, you see his sin and you see his weakness in the gospel account. He is the outspoken one. It's true, he speaks for the group. Sometimes he shouldn't be speaking. Peter would be better here just to be quiet. But there he is, speaking his mind. In fact, in some situations, arguing with the Lord. Telling the Lord he's wrong. It's not going to be that way. It's going to be this way. And getting rebuked and being taught who it is that would fill his mouth with such disagreement. Get behind me, Satan. 
He's outspoken. He's also impulsive, isn't he? This is a man full of passion. On this occasion, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. What a great idea that was. (laughs) That's a bit impulsive, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon said, what did Peter want with walking on the waters? In fact, Spurgeon went on to, to suggest that because Peter means rock, <laughs> it might have warned him that like a stone he would go to the bottom. Spurgeon said, surely he didn't know what he said. This is a man full of a conflicting kind of personality. Sometimes he shines as bright as you could imagine, and sometimes he is shameful to a degree that makes you want to cover your face as you read the Bible. And again, I wonder how many in our day would would conclude, you know, this is just not a, a man you want to entrust ministry to. Yet in the case of Christ, he not only believes that Peter is a man he's going to entrust ministry to, he puts him in the lead In so many situations, he puts Peter out front. How many of us would brand Peter proud? How many would brand him uncareful? He's just not a careful man. How many of us would would emphasize his character weaknesses? But that's not how our Lord dealt with Peter. And so I thought about that a little bit this week. I wonder why it is that Jesus was able to see something in Peter that you and I sometimes are not able to see in others? How is it that our Lord saw a man not just for what he was, but for what he would be, for what he would become? And no doubt, some of that we can attribute to our Lord's perfect knowledge of people. But I also think there are some character things for us to learn from the way Jesus dealt with his men. I think one of the things we need to be careful of is not having too high a view of ourselves. That is, we meet with someone who's not like us, And therefore, we conclude they must not be the kind of man to be useful in ministry because, after all, you're not like me. If you were more like me, then you'd be really useful. But because you're not like me, your personality is different than mine. Your responses are not exactly like mine. Because you're not like me, then I just don't see how the Lord is going to use you. Forgetting that the Lord made us all different on purpose. Each one of us is wired uniquely by the hand of God. And then sometimes maybe we don't deal with people the way Jesus did because not only can we have too high a view of ourselves and measure everyone by how we are, but then we can also have too low a view of what the Lord had to do and has to do and is doing in our case. Forgetting how patient the Lord is with me. Forgetting how often... If it, were le- if it were just dependent upon me, I would have already washed out. How the Lord has been kind to me and gracious to me and patient with me. How it's taken a long time to arrive where I am and where I am is not halfway home. Oh, that the Lord would give us the eyes to see people the way Jesus saw people. That we would have a, a holy, I'm not talking about excusing sin, a holy kind of hopefulness and graciousness, and patience, and an investing spirit. I mean, we will invest in other people. 
and then watch what the Lord does with them and wonder with joy at what the Lord does with someone as He develops them. So the first thing I would point out is we see sin and weakness in Peter in the gospel records. But at the same time, we see grace and strength in Peter. This is what our Lord's patience produced. It produced disciples who eventually, over time, give evidence of the Lord's good work in their lives. You see His grace in them. You see His strength in them. It's true that Peter was outspoken, but he was also unpretentious. He is genuine. He is real. What you see in Peter is what is. At times, it is true he could be impulsive, but it always came from the place of genuine faith. He genuinely loves Jesus. He genuinely wants to please Christ. Even when he overpromises and underdelivers, the overpromising is coming from a place of love for Jesus. Everyone else may deny you, but I will never deny you. He, he meant that. He was wrong. He ends up failing, you know, shamefully, but he, he meant it. I want you to remember something. God makes people with personalities not to be eliminated, but to be developed. Personality is not sinful. It has to be sanctified. But the problem is not that we have different personalities. The problem is, is, that, is that we are affected by sin through and through so that our personalities come to reflect that sinfulness. So the need is not to repent of your personality. The need is to yield to the Spirit of God's work, to yield to the Word of God, the truth of God's Word, and then allow the Lord to transform your personality into something that's useful. I don't find Jesus addressing Peter's personality often. I do find Jesus addressing Peter's sin. So the problem with Peter is not his personality. The problem is that he's a sinner. The problem is that he's got to grow. He is supremely loyal. Why would Peter suggest walking on the water himself? I think there's a part of Peter that if Jesus is outside the boat, I want to be where he is. I would rather be with Jesus out there in a storm than be in, in a supposedly safe place in the storm by myself or with these guys. I'd rather be with him. In fact, this is not the only time you see that sort of attitude in Peter. Remember in John 21, this is after Peter's great failure. John 21 verse 4, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. You get the picture. As soon as Peter hears from John, it's the Lord, he jumps out of the boat to get to the shore. The others come later as they drag that catch to the shoreline, but Peter's on his way. And so this is the one who puts himself in situations 
where he can be embarrassed, but he also puts himself in situations where he can be developed. And that's what we're about to see. So the first thing I would point out about Peter is he's the representative disciple. In him you see the strengths and graces that the Lord produces. In him you see the sin and the weakness that belongs to himself and that must be addressed and is addressed by Jesus. And yet in all these men you see different personalities. And what the Lord does is he doesn't change their personality, he transforms the man. And that's his design for all of us. Do you, do you have a category for that? Do you have a category for Peter in the way you view people? Or are you guilty of measuring everybody by yourself and forgetting how much patience the Lord has with you? Because there are people in congregations that won't be properly developed unless they have shepherds and brethren who see them the way their Lord sees them. Is there a holy hopefulness and graciousness that exists in this congregation? I pray so. Peter is not only the representative disciple, he's also a bold disciple. Verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and came toward Jesus. I said, you see these graces in the soul that the Lord produces. Well, here is one. You see the faith of Peter. He, along with the other disciples, have expressed their fear, terrified, saying it's a ghost, cried out in fear. But then Jesus speaks and he says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. How would Peter respond to that? Peter's response is, Lord, if it is you. Lord, if it is you. Peter addresses the voice with respect in case it is the Lord. But then he asks for a confirming sign. If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I don't know all that went into Peter's request, but here's what I do know. He had to believe that Jesus had the power and the authority to grant such a request. No one has ever seen a man walking on the water. Peter's faith in the Lord Jesus was such that if it is the Lord, not only can he walk on the water, but by his command, I can walk on the water. Now think about what that says about Jesus, right? What Peter believed about Jesus, that he has the power, the authority, that on his word, on his command, I can walk on the water. That's a bold kind of faith, isn't it? But in addition, not only was he bold in what he believed Jesus could do, he was bold in his willingness to be a part of it. He didn't say, Lord, command John to walk on the water. <laughs> command me. Not only do I believe you can do this, but I am willing to be personally invested in the demonstration of it. If it's you, you ask that I should come and I will come. You command that I come and I will come. This is Peter again demonstrating a kind of understanding that has to come from God. This is not normal. This is not natural. This is supernatural. 
We'll meet with it again in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Where did you get this understanding from, Peter? You got it from God. And where does this kind of faith come from in verse 28? Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. This comes from God. His belief in what Jesus can do and his willingness to be a part of it. This kind of bold faith has come from the Lord. But you don't just see bold faith, you see obedience. Verse 29, and he said, come. Now, I don't know if Peter expected that or not, but there it is. All right, come. Now, you've said what you will do, but what will you do? The storm is raging. We're going to see in a moment. It's so strong, he's going to lose his nerve. But to now obey the command of Jesus, by the way, this is a Christ affirmed sifting of their faith. I say Christ affirmed because Peter initiates this. He's the one who initiates it. He's the one who offers the test. He's the one who asks for the command. All Jesus does is he affirms his own disciples' choices that then sift his disciples' faith. Jesus says, come. Now, what is Peter going to do? Well, what he did is he got out of that boat. He stepped out of that place of safety Onto a raging sea, nothing to trust in but the word of Jesus. That he is not going to sink and drown. And he does it. He obeys. This is the nature of true faith, isn't it? God speaks. We hear what he says and we are able by the Spirit of God to perceive in what he has said who he is. We perceive his majesty. We perceive his authority. We perceive his veracity. What he says can be trusted so that based on nothing more than what he has said, I will step out and do what he commands. That's faith. Willing to stake your life on nothing more than the word of God. Peter believed that Christ's command would impart to him an ability beyond anything he possessed in himself. He knew that men don't walk on water unless the one who walks on water like it's the earth commands you to come and then you can walk on water. And so he obeys a command that only Jesus could give him the ability to obey. And dear ones, I want you to recognize that about your faith as well. Not only resting your life on the Word of God, but then as you take those steps of obedience, you are also aware of the fact that your own ability, your own strength could never allow you to obey what God has just commanded. So you not only believe Him, you trust Him as you walk forward in what He says. Command whatever you want, God, but then give me the ability to obey what you command. Well, He starts off well walked on the water, came toward Jesus. Then he runs into a struggle, verse 30, but seeing the wind, 
he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. A miracle, truly walking on the water, coming to Jesus. And as his eyes are fixed on Jesus, he's doing fine. But as soon as he is distracted, as soon as he begins to take note of the elements around him, he begins to sink. Saw the wind, felt fear, begins to sink. That's amazing too, isn't it? I mean, think about it. You are walking on the water. The word of Christ is proven to be absolutely true. He said, come, and now I'm coming. Why would I be afraid of anything else? I mean, the wind was strong when I got out of the boat. The sea is churning when I got out of the boat. Now I'm on it. Why would I see the wind and be afraid? Does our doubt ever make sense? It doesn't, does it? God commands, there we are, we're traveling just fine. The Lord is honored. Our life is sweet. Things are going well. And then we stray. We struggle. We doubt. And it makes no sense. I can tell you this, believer, the times you regret in your life are not the times you've obeyed the Lord. The times you regret in your life are the times you've disobeyed Him. So why do you disobey Him? Because you know the reality of ongoing, indwelling sin, don't you? What is strong in you is the Lord's strength. What is weak in you is you. And so that's the struggle, to keep your eyes fixed on Christ, to maintain a mind that is fixed on Him, to live in that realm that the Lord has enabled you to live in, where you're believing Him and obeying Him and trusting Him and relying on Him. But there's that struggle we have with the elements around us and with the sin that's within us. Why do we doubt? Because for all of His strength, we are still weak. Clay, jar, vessels. And yet, so what are you seeing? You're seeing the amazing nature of Peter's faith. I mean, he has just believed Jesus can do something that only God can do. He has actually participated in what he believed in. He has stepped out of a boat onto a raging sea in the midst of a fierce storm. This is amazing faith, and yet in the very same situation, what is on display, what is exposed, is the weakness of Peter's faith, the frailty of Peter's faith. I mean, notice in verse 31, Jesus does not rebuke Peter for his request. This is what we might have expected. Oh, you foolish man, why would you ever ask me to walk on the water? That's not what he says. He says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? So he's not rebuked for his request. He is reproved in an exhortative way for what he was lacking. Your faith is small. Your faith is not fully developed, perfectly developed. Your faith is weak. What does Peter do in this moment when he's afraid? This is interesting, isn't it? But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. So he understands that the same one who commanded him to walk on the water is the one who now must save him as he sinks below the water. Lord, save me. Which means what we are seeing in Peter is not an absence of faith. His faith is still focused on Jesus. 
When it was getting out of the boat, it's on Jesus. Now that he's sinking under the water, he still understands his helper, his savior, his deliverer, his need is for Jesus. Lord, save me. It's not the absence of faith, it's the weakness of faith. And what does Jesus do? Does he let Peter drown? Does he let him spend a little time under the water? Let me just let you spend a little time under there. Let you experience this a little bit. I'll bring you up coughing water out of your lungs. No, Peter cries out, Lord, save me. What does he do? Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Notice this, and when, circle this word, they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Takes his hand, lays hold of Peter, lifts him up, and fulfilled Peter's desire. Why does Peter want to get out of the boat? He wants to be with Jesus. And Jesus delivers him from his own weakness of faith in a way that Peter's desire is fulfilled for Jesus is now with him in the boat, takes him to the boat, gets into the boat with him. This is our life, isn't it? This is us. We've known this kind of kindness from Jesus. We've believed him and then we have doubted him and then we've begun to sink under the weight of our own inability and unbelief and unfaithfulness. And then we've cried out to him and he's not only lifted us up again and again and again, but he delivers us in ways that make us closer to him than we were before we sank. And all the while, as we just sang about this morning, we are safe in his hand, safe in his grasp. Spurgeon observed, Peter was closer to Jesus after he saw that he was sinking than when he was walking on the water. Walking on the water, he's coming to Jesus. He begins to sink. He cries out to Jesus, and he's in his hand, and he's with him all the way to the boat. How many have experienced, how many of my brothers and sisters have experienced just that, that there you are having sunk, you feel like to the bottom, but in the Lord's graciousness and kindness, as you feel his hand upon your life, as he doesn't let you go, as he draws you near to himself, afresh and anew, as he walks you back to the place of safety, you're now closer to him than you were before you sank. This is how Jesus deals with Peter. This is how Jesus deals with his men. So we see a Christ-arranged testing of their faith. We see a Christ-affirmed sifting of their faith. Now notice a Christ-worshiping confession of faith, verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Is there a purpose to this storm? Has it served its purpose? Could the Lord have stopped it at any moment that he wanted? As soon as they're in the boat, it stops. And those who were in the boat worshipped him. I mean, to whom do you give worship? To God and God alone. Jesus does not refuse this. 
They worshiped him saying, you are truly God's son. We've heard the demons confess it. But for the first time, we hear the disciples confess it. This is the climax of the story, by the way. The climax is not Jesus walking on the water. The climax is not Peter walking on the water. The climax is not Jesus rescuing Peter from his weak faith. The climax is this confession. This is what the Spirit of God wants us to hear and know. Jesus is truly the Son of God who came to this earth 2,000 years ago. God came to this earth 2,000 years ago to His own creation, born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us, lived a sinless life to save sinners from their sins, died on a cross to save sinners from their sins, was raised from the dead bodily to save sinners from their sins, has ascended into heaven and intercedes at this very moment for everyone whom He will save and has saved. Jesus has done everything necessary to save sinners from their sins. This is who was on the earth. This is who was walking on the water. The one who is truly the eternal Son of God come to earth and now has taken to himself an additional sinless, real human nature to save men from their sins. Dear one, the greatest need you've ever had in your life is forgiveness. And Jesus came and did everything necessary to forgive you and to make you God's own child. And they see it and they confess it. Now their, their understanding is still underdeveloped. They're going to go on growing in their understanding of who the Lord is and what He came to do. In fact, at this point, they don't even fathom the resurrection. In fact, shortly after the resurrection, they're trying to process the resurrection. Their, their faith is being informed and it is growing, but it is genuine. God has granted them a, a true understanding and they see that Jesus is the Son of God. And what they see on the water, they see immediately after when they get off the water. Confirmed once again the true identity of Jesus in the healing of masses of people. Verse 34, and when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. By the way, this is a, a fairly abandoned area, not, not highly populated. On the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, in all likelihood, remember Jesus sends his men over to get rest. This should be an area where they can get rest. But verse 35, when the men of that place recognized him, then they sent word into all the surrounding district. And what we see in Jesus just keeps going on. There is no place for rest. There is no place for stopping. As the masses of people come to him, all who were sick, verse 35 says, and they were pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. Perhaps they'd heard the story of the woman who was healed of the issue of blood. We don't know, but can I just touch the hem of his garment? And as they did, they were cured. What are we witnessing? We're witnessing signs that point to the true identity of this one who's walking the earth. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. What was seen on the sea is seen on the land. So let me, as I finish this morning, ask you, do you have genuine faith? It might, it might not be great faith. It might be a weaker faith. But is it a genuine faith? I mean, you're resting your life on the Word of God. And even when you're sinking under the water, you know who to cry out to. 
and you love him. I think this is the real core difference between a demonic kind of faith than a genuine faith. It's true. It's proven in work. It's proven by fruitfulness. But I think the core of it is identified in the New Testament letters when, for example, Paul writes, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be accursed. There it is. Do you love the Lord Jesus? This is what Jesus questions Peter about three times after his denial. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And that's what I'm asking you today. Do you love the Lord Jesus? And don't tell me you love him if you don't want to please him. No one is more grieved by our failures than the believer. Why? Because in our souls, there's the desire to please him. We don't just grieve the Lord when we sin. We don't just grieve others when we sin. We grieve us because we desire to please him. Do you desire to please him? Do you really? This is a moment of needed honesty on your part because if you're dishonest about this, you may be one of those who are weeping and gnashing their teeth one day when Jesus says, depart from me, you who worked iniquity. I never knew you. You said you knew me, but I didn't know you. And I'm telling you, the identifying factor was not just the fruit, but the source of that kind of life, and that is love for God. Do you love Jesus? Is your faith genuine? And if you say, yes, I know the Lord, He has saved me, then I want to ask you, where has your faith been small? Where would Jesus reprove you this morning for your doubting? Where are you doubting? Command what you will, then will what you command. Tell me where to go, Lord, and I will go. And then there you are sinking under the water. Where are you doubting? Will you cry out to him to help you? To save you? To strengthen you? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Will you confess your sins, repent of them, get up from where you've been floundering and follow. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you praise him today for his faithfulness to you? Do you see his faithfulness to you? Do you see his patience with you, his kindness toward you, his generosity toward you, how he deals with you in a way far more hopeful than men do? Are you grateful for that? Even as he reproves you, do you give him praise? Are you able to say with the psalmist that if the Lord had not reproved you, scourged you, corrected you, you would have wandered away? Oh, how sweet are the faithful wounds of our best friend. Do you know that kind of gratefulness in your heart? So that what I'm asking is, will you pledge to serve him on the other side of that faithfulness? He is good to you. He is patient with you. He is gracious to you. Now, what kind of life does that call for? And will we together in this place this morning say, Lord, you have never failed me. I have failed you often, but you have never failed me. And what you deserve is what you command, which is I am to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, I will follow you wherever you go and in whatever you command knowing that you must give me the ability to fulfill what you 
command. So I'll believe you and I'll trust you. Would you pledge in your heart right now, wherever you're aware of that doubting, wherever you've been sinking into the water, metaphorically speaking, would you, would you say, Lord, save me that I might walk with you on the other side of this weakness? And the Lord's church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are overwhelmed by your faithfulness to us, your patience with us, your graciousness to us. As we say often, because it is so often apparent to us, as the psalmist said, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But instead, you have forgiven our sins. You have cast them as far away from us as the east is from the west. You have dropped them into the sea of your forgetfulness not to bring them up again. Lord, you see us clothed in the righteousness of your Son. And that's how you deal with us every single day. Yet you are a faithful Father who reproves and scourges and corrects every son whom he receives so that even in our corrections, Lord, there is joy because it speaks of your love for us, your children. Wherever we have seen in this text today, Lord, ourselves, I pray that we would learn the lessons, take them to our hearts, Repent of our sins, cry out to Christ, walk with you, Lord, knowing who you are. You are indeed, truly, the Son of God. What unbelievable, amazing grace is ours that we would know you. Thank you for making us to know you, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.